And welcome to Pride Part News Daily. Thanks for being here. Hope you had a nice weekend. So I don't like to start off the show with this, but I, I just had to. Uh, talking about the American service members who were killed. Uh, in this opening segment, the number was 25. That number has since increased to 34 injured. So three killed, 34 injured, not 25. And the number will probably go up, and you're being lied to about it all anyway. So uh, that's what we talked about, the Afghanistan papers. like to come out on a Monday morning with this news, with heavy news, with sad, terrible news, but I'd I, I have to. Uh, three U.S. service members were killed, and we were told many wounded in a drone strike in Jordan. And we're now hearing that that number is 25 injuries. And I don't know what people think of when they when they hear the word injury, but uh, it could be anything. Right? An injury could be like I hurt my finger to severe, debilitating injury for the rest of their life. This attack came from Iranian-backed militia groups. We're going to talk with Christina Wong, Pentagon correspondent, coming up at eight twenty on the show today. Tom Cotton said, Joe Biden emboldened Iran for years by tolerating attacks on our troops, bribing the Ayatollahs with billions of dollars, and appeasing them to no end. He left our troops as sitting ducks, and now three are dead and dozens wounded. Sadly, I predicted this would happen for months. So there have been, on this point of uh, tolerating attacks on our troops, there's been more than 150 attacks against U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria since uh, mid-October, October 7th, right, when uh, Hamas attacked Israel. And we've heard stories a little bit here and there of, and, and we'll talk to Christina more about it, but of, of uh, Americans with traumatic brain injury. Like these, like they'd attack us, and we'd just be like, ah, like in the news would make it just seem like, ah, oh, you know. Like they're shooting um, like uh, bottle rockets at us or something like, ah, those pesky Houthis. And then you get a story of, of a bunch of Americans coming home with traumatic brain injury. Like, wait, what's going on then? What, the, seems to be more serious than we're being let on. And this is the first time that Americans have been killed, three of them. Congressman Mike Waltz said it's only a matter of time before Biden's appeasement strategy towards Iran got American service members killed. Tragic and preventable indeed. Let's take this time now this morning to talk about the Afghanistan papers. Mentioned them last week. I said I'd get around to it. This seems like a good time. Now, your instinct may say, Slater, why? Afghanistan was in the past. <laughs> well, it's the same reason we learn from anything about our history, so we don't repeat our mistakes. And I guess we're going to war with Iran now? <laughs> if you listen to Lindsey Graham, which you shouldn't, but if you listen, if, if, if we're supposed to follow the path of Lindsey Graham, then I guess we're now going to, uh, to war with Iran. And we're going to war because of our weakness. We're going to war because of our weakness, not because of our strength. Big difference. We are going to war with Iran because of our, out of, not, not out of strength. By the way, I hope we, yeah, well, we'll talk about what to do later. So this Afghanistan, this, we're not going back to like a thousand years. Like, like this is, we've lived through this history and we're repeating these mistakes again. The Afghanistan withdrawal was August 2021. That was the withdrawal. August 2021. And then Ukraine was February 2022. So six months later. How could... Like, like the, the midwits in charge are wise overlords. If they knew their history, then they never would have invaded Afghanistan because they would have known it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. You do not invade Afghanistan. From Alexander the Great to the Anglo-Afghan War from 1838 to 1842. The Brits left Afghanistan in 1842. The Prime Minister, 
handed power over to the next prime minister. And his advice, his advice was, my dear boy, as long as you do not invade Afghanistan, you'll be absolutely fine. There are paintings from 150 years ago of the British getting ambushed in Kabul. It is surreal that not that long after the Brits were there, we just walk right in and think things are going to go any different. 40,000 British soldiers died. 40,000. <laughs> you think we would have learned from history. But they were like, well, that was a long time ago. Things are very different now than in the 1840s later. Come on, that was before uh, before the Civil War. Okay, how about the Russians? The Soviet-Afghan War. That was 1979 to 1989. It was 10 years. The Soviets had four times the fighting force, and they left Afghanistan in defeat. And we said, ah, 10 years, we'll make it 20. And that was just 12 years later. Is that right? How can that be? 12 years later. 12 years after the Soviet-Afghan War. 12 years later. Wow. Mm, Okay. So there was a report that was never meant to go public. 400 interviews from uh, the people at the top. Uh, and 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 many ranks up and down the whole thing. 400 interviews, 2,000 pages, unpublished notes and interviews with people who played a direct role in the war. Generals, diplomats, aid workers, Afghan officials. And here's what's, what's important about this report is that no one involved intended for it to be public or thought it ever would go public. So these are honest assessments of the war, of the Afghanistan war. Now, let me, let me say this before we go for them. First, uh, these aren't necessarily bad people. They're people operating in corrupt and perverse systems. The systems are broken. Number two, nothing has changed. So I do, I do not want for one second for this to feel like a rehash of old news. This is not a rehash of old news as much as I'm predicting the future. This is not rehashing old news as much as here's Slater telling you exactly what's going to happen in the next war that we fight. Until the systems are changed dramatically. Because human nature has never changed and will never change. And specifically, the Pentagon has never changed. And the deep state has never changed. And the people who fight our wars, like not, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say fight our wars. Those are the men and women on the ground. The, the people who are directing the, the men and women on the ground, the, those people have not changed. So this is, this is not, I'm not going back in time. We are looking into a crystal ball. Nothing has changed. All right, I got five stories we'll share. Five. Number one, Doug Lute, three-star army general. He was the Afghan czar during Obama and Bush. In 2015, he said, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. What are the demographics of the country? The economic drivers. Aid, really? We're going to do something in Afghanistan with $10 billion? Haiti's a small country in our own backyard with no extremist insurgency. and We can't develop it. What are we trying to do here? We don't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. It's really much worse than you think. If the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, and he trails off. If the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, 2,400 lives lost. Meanwhile, at that time, we were told everything is great. Everything's going according to plan. We're making vast improvements. Nothing to worry about here. I'll share some of those quotes in a minute. So one of the things we decided to do is we have to crush their opium trade in Afghanistan. So we spent $9 billion to fight this problem, and now they grow more opium than they did before the war. I love the story because it's how inept we are. We would pay farmers to destroy their opium crop. So what they did is they stopped growing any other food and just grew opium so that they could then destroy it and pocket our money. 
You with me? So they stopped growing food and just started growing opium and then burned it and then took our money. And then they figured out how to harvest the opium and then and then and then burn it after they harvested it. So they got double the money. They got our money and the opium money and stopped growing food. <laughs> so we we're like, oh no, we, we gotta help them grow food. Let's help them grow soybeans. So we had a $34 million program to grow soybeans. A couple of problems. First, soybeans don't grow in Afghanistan, minor detail. Second, the people of Afghanistan, they, they, they didn't work. <laughs> they, you could, they didn't work anything. They didn't do any work. And if they did work, and let's say it was a crop that grew in Afghanistan, no one in Afghanistan eats soybeans. So it's like us coming in just, just forcing something. Like soybeans are a metaphor. You with me? Like it's real. Like we actually did try to do it. But it's a metaphor. Soybeans and, and opium are a metaphor. We tried to force soybeans down these people's throats. We tried to, we tried to get rid of opium, doubled it, tried to force soybean, and they didn't want it. But it didn't stop us from trying. So the waste of money are honestly the least of my problems. Honestly, least, least of my problems here. We would build all these things for them, and then they would do nothing with them, and then they would just get destroyed. We built them a $335 million power plant outside Kabul, and we handed it to them, and they don't know how to do it. They didn't know how to work it. So it's just nothing. It just went away. We spent over a trillion dollars. A trillion. One trillion dollars in Afghanistan. A retired Navy SEAL. He said, what do we get for this trillion dollar effort? Was it worth a trillion dollars? After the killing of Osama bin Laden, I said that Osama was probably laughing in his watery grave considering how much we spent on Afghanistan. There's no question. A million. Many aid workers blamed Congress for what they saw as a mindless rush to spend. One unidentified contractor told government interviewers he was expected to dole out $3 million a day for projects in a single Afghan district roughly the size of, a, size of a U.S. county. He once asked a visiting congressman whether the lawmaker could responsibly spend that, much, that kind of money back home. He said, heck no. Well, sir, that's what you've just obligated us to spend. And I'm doing it for communities that live in mud huts with no windows. $3 million a day in one area. We originally allocated $133 billion to build up Afghanistan which was more than the Marshall Plan, which was used to rebuild all of Western Europe after World War II, adjusted for inflation, $133 billion. Instead, we spent 10 times that with nothing to show for it. Okay, Abs absolute, how do you even describe that as a waste of money? Like that, that's so much beyond waste of money. But again, the money's like, like truly like, it's a big problem. It's like the least of the problems here. Third point. The bigger concern is lying with impunity to your face constantly. So, oh, by the way, I'm reading from a Washington Post. So there's a book about this and there's a Washington Post expose about this. That's what I'm reading from here. You just Google Washington Post uh, Afghanistan papers. Several of those interviewed described explicit and sustained efforts by the U.S. government to deliberately mislead the public. Again, not rehashing old history. If you're just tuning in right now, I'm going to say this the whole time just to make sure we're on the same page. I'm not rehashing old history. It's not, wow, can you believe that like 10 years ago the military lied to you? Wow, that was awful back then. No, no. It is right now. This is right now and in the future. Nothing's changed. It's not the explicit and sustained efforts that they did to mislead in the past. It's the deliberate and sustained efforts that they are still currently misleading you now. They said it was common at military headquarters in Kabul and at the White House to distort statistics to make it appear that the United States was winning the war when that was not the case. That's Bob Crowley, Colonel of the Army. Senior counterinsurgency advisor to the U.S. military commanders in 2013-2014. He said every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. Surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced that everything we were doing was right, and we became a self-licking ice cream cone. 
They just lied to you. Constantly lied to you about everything. This is McChrystal. Truth was rarely welcome. Everyone at NATO just wanted to hear good news. So bad news was often stifled. There was more freedom to share bad news if it was small, like we're running over kids with our MRAPs, because those things could be changed with policy directives. But when we tried to air larger strategic concerns about the willingness, capacity, or corruption of the Afghan government, it was clear it wasn't welcome and the boss wouldn't like it. There were a number of faulty assumptions in the strategy. Afghanistan's ready for a democracy overnight. The people will support the government in a short time frame. More of everything is better. The head of the federal agency who conducted these interviews, which again, at the time, the people doing the interviews did not think they would ever be made public, admitted that the documents and all these interviews showed, quote, the American people have constantly been lied to. Now, none of this stuff that they said in private is what they said in public, of course, hence the line. Mark Milley in public, this was before he was Trump's Joint Chiefs of Staff, by the way. He said about the Afghan army, this, this was in public. In public, he said, this army and this police force has been very, very effective in combat against the insurgents every single day. So I'm with the Afghan army. And I think it's an important story to be told across the board. Okay? Lying to you. Anyone who's ever served in Afghanistan can call in right now and tell their story of how absurd that statement is and how everyone knew it in Afghanistan. They get, you're t anyone who served in Afghanistan with the Afghan army can tell you that they were not effective in combat. 866-95-PATRIOT if you just want to tell a quick story to prove that that is true. And here's Mark Milley in public saying, oh, no, they're very effective. And they're doing a wonderful job. One special forces guy who worked with the Afghan army, he said they were awful. The bottom of the barrel in a country that is already at the bottom of the barrel. A U.S. military officer estimated that one third of the police recruits were drug addicts or Taliban. Another called them stealing fools who looted us so much, who looted so much gasoline from the U.S. bases that they perpetually smelled of gasoline. Okay. So listen, we can talk about the money, a trillion dollars. That would have been much better spent here or not spent at all. But I'm much more concerned with the, and we're going to waste more money, of course, with whatever we continue to do moving forward. I'm way more concerned with the absolute lying to your face with impunity and then getting promotions. Mark Milley being one of many, surely. Fourth problem, still a problem we have today. We don't know who the bad guys are or we're not willing to say it. I mean, literally, these Houthis who, are, who killed Americans and are, are killing Americans right now, we took them off. Biden, like one of the first things he did was took them off the terror list because he thought that, that, that would make, like, we'd be nice to them, they'll be nice to us, and then they'll start spending money on their own people as opposed to bombing us. So we took them off the terror list. Okay, we, we, either we don't know who the bad guys are or we're unwilling to tell, say who the bad guys are. Um, we, we, we didn't know, we wouldn't say if Al-Qaeda was the enemy or was the Taliban, how, was Pakistan good, were they bad? We had the Islamic State and these cartel warlords on the CIA payroll. We, like, wouldn't, we didn't know. And then in the field, we didn't know if you were good or bad. This is one special ops advisor. They thought I was going to come to tell them with a map to show them where the good guys and the bad guys live. It took several conversations for them to understand that I did not have the information on my hands. At first, they just kept asking, who are the bad guys? Where are they? Donald Rumsfeld, in a memo in 2003, he said, I have no visibility into, where the into who the bad guys are. We are woefully deficient in human intelligence. We have no idea who the enemy is. And this is still true today. Fifth point, we knew we were losing. We knew it. As early as 2006, I mean, that, the, when I just read that memo, it was from 2003 with uh, Donald Rumsfeld. 
But in 2006, a retired army general was on a fact-finding mission in Afghanistan. And he said the Taliban was almost completely back in power and the next two years are going to be brutal. And if and ever we leave, the whole thing is going to collapse back into mayhem again almost immediately. That was in 2006. We finally left in 2021. And immediately, like in like minutes, <laughs> we left. We didn't even leave yet. It was before we even left. So the idea, the idea was back in 2006, this retired army general was like, man, if we ever leave, things are going to get real bad real fast. So then we finally left, and it was before we even left. Things were horrible, as you now know. Okay, so everyone knew this. Everyone knew this was true. And what did Donald Rumsfeld tell us? That same year, 2006, the Pentagon and Donald Rumsfeld wrote a paper called Afghanistan Five Years Later, and it was full of great news. Great news. What, what kind of news? 19,000 women have been trained in poultry management. The average speed on roads is, has gone up 300%. Ooh. I mean, wonderful. Five years on, there's a multitude of good news. While it has become fashionable in some circles to call Afghanistan a forgotten war or to say that the U.S. has lost its focus, the facts belie the myths. And they went on and told you about all the women who can now raise chickens and how you can drive faster on the roads in Afghanistan. Oh, it's wonderful. Trillion dollars, 2,500 lives lost. And Rumsfeld read this report, thought it was great. He said it's an excellent piece. And how do we get it into as many uh, like newspapers? Like, like, what's the best way to get it out to the people? Because the people need to know this report. That is just absurd. They like, like I don't even know. Were 19,000 women trained in poultry management? I don't know. Sure. But like, that's the best you got. Barack Obama, 2009, he said, going forward, we will not blindly stay the course. Instead, we will set clear metrics to measure progress and hold ourselves accountable. They didn't. So they created a metric because, yeah, we got, we're going to create, create clear metrics, hold ourselves accountable. Okay, so they created a metric called body counts, number of enemy fighters killed. And they lied about those numbers, <laughs> straight lied about them to show that the troop surge was working. Even when casualty counts and other figures looked bad, the senior NCS, NSC official, NCS official said the White House and Pentagon would spin them to the point of absurdity. Suicide bombings in Kabul were portrayed as a sign of the Taliban's desperation. All right, so Americans were dying from more suicide, suicide bombings. Obviously, that's you know, bad, but they would be spun as, oh, good, they're desperate, see? We're winning. Look how desperate they are. It was spun as a way to prove that the insurgents were too weak to engage in direct combat. Meanwhile, a rise in U.S. troop deaths was cited as proof that American forces were taking the fight to the enemy. Michael Flynn said, from the ambassadors down to the low level, they all say we're doing a great job. Really? So if we're doing a really great job, why does it feel like we're losing? Because we were losing the whole time and you were lied to about it every step of the way. A naval warfare strategist, he advised Marines in Afghanistan in 2011. He said the military officials in the field devoted an inordinate amount of time to, or re, of resources, excuse me, an inordinate amount of resources to churning out color-coded charts that heralded positive results. Quote, they had a really expensive machine that would print these really large pieces of paper like in a print shop for their, for their presentations. And there would be a caveat that these are not actually scientific figures and that there's not a scientific process behind them. But nobody dared to question whether the charts and numbers were credible or meaningful. These were the best and the brightest. This, this, is, the, this is the best. 20 years we were here. 20 years. I'll make one more quick point, and then we'll go to Dan. Uh, James Dobbins, the former diplomat, served a special envoy to Afghanistan under Bush and Obama. He said, as I said in that study, we don't invade poor countries to make them rich. We don't invade authoritarian countries to make them democratic. We invade violent countries to make them peaceful. And we clearly failed in Afghanistan and in Somalia and several others. And here's the key. We have succeeded in others, Bosnia and Kosovo most notably. They're still corrupt, poorly functioning societies, but they're peaceful. That's the reason we went in the first place. So that's what we should be doing with wars. We don't go in to make them rich. We don't go in to make them democratic. 
We're going to make them peaceful. We're going to make them knock it off. We're going to make them stop shooting drones at our bases and kill Americans. That's what we should be doing. That's what Trump did, by the way. When he launched that drone at Soleimani and killed him, it wasn't to make Iran democratic. The goal wasn't to make Iran wealthy or, or functioning in any way. It was to get them to stop killing us. And this is the quote that's most haunting of all to me. This is George W. Bush. And I'll tell you a conversation I had later with, with an establishment Republican who's appalled at Donald Trump. And they said, yes, yes. We should definitely go back to the days of George W. Bush. He was so nice. Oh, George W. Bush had values. So many values. He said at VMI, Virginia Military Institute, April 17th, 2022, he said the history of military conflict in Afghanistan has been one of initial success followed by long years of floundering and ultimate failure. We are not going to repeat that mistake. That is a real-life quote of George W. Bush back in 2002. September 17th, just a couple months after the war started. And we're not going to repeat that mistake. That's exactly what we did. 20 years later. And again, not a single thing has changed. Go to Dan, who's in Connecticut, 866-95-PATRIOTS, the number. What's going on, Dan? Hey, how's it going, Mr. Slater? It's going real well, man, except I'm, uh, I I don't like the path we're going uh, foreign policy-wise, and, and I fear nothing has changed from these Afghanistan papers. Did you serve over there? I did. I uh, I served over there a uh, total of 15 months. 12 months was in Iraq, and then uh, the other three months, our squad became a detachment. And we got orders to go to Kandahar, Afghanistan for the remaining three months. So uh, I was in an engineer battalion, and uh, without giving up too much information, uh, we was in Kandahar, and we were attached to uh, an engineer brigade. And we just were our, our main mission was to go over and do route, I'm sorry, route clearance, route sanitation, drop down gates, so on and so forth. And so we worked directly with. Uh, some of the Afghan nationals and, you know, the Afghan army and whatnot, they, you know, were in our convoy and shit. And, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not judging or anything. But my opinion from what I saw with working with them, with, with the individuals that we work with, I would say only a couple really, really gave, uh, you know, gave an actual care about what they were doing as far as us trying to teach them what, what to do checkpoints uh you know just making sure that they're doing their job only a portion of them a small portion actually cared and the rest of them was just kind of like lost in the sauce and it's like come on dude we're, we're trying to we're trying to better you guys we're trying to teach you guys to take over your area your land and just take control of it and do what you got to do and half of you guys don't even give a crap you know it's, it's like what the hell man so and it just it had its times where it was good, and it had its times where it's bad. And it's like, I'm looking at my my, my fellow soldiers. I'm I'm serving. It's like, what the hell? If these people don't give a shit, and part of my language, they don't care. Well, like, what the hell are we even doing here then? You know? Mm-hmm. Do you think 100? I can't I can't imagine that's so horrific. What um, do you think we've learned our lessons? And do you think the military has changed at all? And do you think we'll be any different next time we fight a war? Honestly, no. The way. The way this current commander chief is running the show, man, I, you know, it's sad. You know, to kind of give you a little history, man, I, I both my parents are Marines. I got a, a long family history of service in, to this nation. And the way I see things are right now, um, honestly, I think our, our enemies are laughing their freaking asses off to the bank, thinking that, you know, America, the way these the, the policies that are being put in place for just a lot of stuff I don't agree with, you know, it's my opinion. I don't agree with anything that's being put in place right now and claiming that, you know, oh, we're going to make the military better. We got to keep it up and, you know, the culture's got to change. Yeah, no, tell that to the Chinese and everybody else. You've got to tell them to change their culture, see what they say. <laughs> That's it. 
You know what I mean? Dan, 100%. Dan, I appreciate the call. Thanks for your service, brother. Thank you very much. Uh, of course, I don't need to do a disclaimer that this is nothing about the men and women on the ground. Of course, right? This is all about the higher-ups. We all know that. Um, first, I love how Dan calls in and uh, has to put the, the side of, I'm not an expert. <laughs> yes, you are, Dan. And everyone else listening now, especially those who served in Afghanistan, you are an expert. Do not cede any power or authority or moral clarity or moral superiority or intellectual superior superiority to these people. These people know nothing. They're they're absolute midwits to the extreme. I, I, as I said, that they're not bad people. Some of them are bad people. But do not ever, do not ever say again, I'm not an expert. Especially when you definitely are. <laughs> like, Dan, you served there. You're an expert. You saw it with your own eyes. But even the rest of us who didn't serve there, we know what happened. We lived through it. We want to learn from it. And the people in the system don't. Clearly don't. Let me take a break. What do we do with this now? What do we do with this? Now, again, there's a book about this called The Afghan. I think it's called The Afghanistan Papers. And then there's uh, the Was At the very least, you got to read the Washington Post article about it. I don't know if it's behind a paywall or not, but you, there, there's a quicker version of the book out there. When I first heard The Afghanistan paper stuff, it was, a, it was an atomic explosion of cynicism that exploded in my brain. Just this massive detonation of cynicism that just, I could just, I can't even, I can't even describe. And I, listen, I know, I wasn't even sure if we should bring this up again because, uh, I don't know, I, I forget even how it came up the other day. But I got a bunch of emails from people who were like, "Oh, so I've never heard of the Afghanistan Papers. Like, what, what, what are these things?" And I was like, "Oh, wow. Okay, we have to do this." And I hope right now, before we even get to the what do we do with this, I just want, I want to take a break. I just want you to, I want this to, I want this to to detonate in your soul. I want this to explode in your brain. And go through all the emotions that you should be going through right now. Of knowing to the extent and the depth that you were lied to about Afghanistan and about Iraq and about everything else that's going on right now too. I cannot express it enough. You are constantly lied to. And I hope after you go through your emotions, I don't know, I don't know if you, like you're angry, like whatever the emotions are, like go through them and then never trust these people again. Never trust them with a single thing they ever say ever again. This is why like when the, the Navy SEALs died, the two Navy SEALs died off the coast of Somalia the other day, I kept saying whenever, whenever I was like reading a report, I kept saying, well, I, I kept saying like, um, you know, we are told that they were boarding a ship and one fell off the ladder and another jumped in after. Like, that's what we're told. Sounds odd, but okay. You're lied to about everything. Every small particular thing, like like what happened in this particular incident, to the larger picture as well. Oh, the Houthis. No big deal. Everything's fine. great to talk to dr don buckingham she's the texas land commissioner i've never lived in a state with a land commissioner uh but texas has one and it's extremely important to get an update on what's happening in texas right now with the commissioner of the texas general land office also known as the texas land commissioner dr don buckingham dr buckingham how are you today Hey, I am just great. Happy Monday morning to you. And to you. So I, I never lived in a state with a land commissioner. So what is a <laughs> land commissioner? And how did you get yourself in the center of this this huge constitutional battle between Texas and the feds? But first, what, what even do you do? What is the land commissioner? 
Well, we are the last remaining vigil of the Republic of Texas. So when the Republic was transitioning into a state, we had lived under multiple flags, had overlapping land grants, and we had to figure out who owned what. So the General Land Office was founded to be the keeper of maps, the guardians of Texas history, and the steward to what is today is 13 million acres, which ties into how we got in this fight. Uh, we're responsible for the majority of oil and gas in the state. I'm not just the largest landowner, but I'm largest mineral rights owner. And, and if you look at how the Biden administration has been able to shut down oil and gas in the rest of the country on their federal lands and things like that, they haven't been so successful in Texas. That's why they keep streaming at us. And then, of course, with our mapping responsibility and stewarding the land, then we have those islands in the Rio Grande. We just made Texas bigger and America bigger for the first time in a few hundred years, claiming a couple of those islands and taking away those safe sanctuaries from uh, from the cartels, but we also do everything coast, disaster recovery, we run our veterans benefits, we fund education, we do a lot of fun things. It's a statewide elected position, but pretty special in the United States, actually. Okay, so there's a lot going on there. The one that stood out among all the claiming islands? What are you doing? Donald Trump says he oh, wanted this, to take Greenland. Yes, this, it was. This is the funnest thing ever. I, I, I tease because I'm the first woman land commissioner that it took a woman to get it done right because the ask had been in for a couple years. People have been going in circles about could we claim these islands or not. But early in my tenure, I was asked by the Department of Public Safety to look at declaring these islands Texas. And by our treaty with Mexico from the mid-1800s, anything north of the center of the Rio Grande is, of course, ours. And uh, And so I got my surveyors out, made sure we were good on where the center of the river was, made sure we were good with the treaty, and then claimed them. And, and the reason they're so important is when they were just in the middle of the Rio Grande before they had been claimed, neither American law enforcement nor Mexican law enforcement or military could step on them. So they were truly sanctuaries. The largest one, the last one, Fronten Island, was 170 acres. We literally, it was a great place for them to stash all their weapons. It was a great place for them to stash all their drugs, to traffic human beings, because they were entirely safe there, except when the other rival cartels were trying to take the island because it was such, such a strategic advantage. So we claimed it. Our Texas military department and DPS cleared the islands, and now I'm happy to say they are fully defended and there is no human trafficking or weapons or drugs coming across those pieces of property. Okay, well, that's awesome. Uh, Fulton Island. Never heard of this. Mm -hmm. Fulton. Some, of the, some of the media has nicknamed it Cartel Island. <laughs> so Not anymore. I personally think Buckingham Island is better, but, you know, yeah, they that, didn't go there. That's unbelievable. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, that's great. All right, so I want to talk about the liquid natural gas in just a second, but first let's back it up here. Where were you, what's your role in this whole thing with, with uh, Eagle Pass and just the border? Uh, let's do border in general. What's the land commissioner's role with the border in general with Mexico? And then uh, specifically what's going on at Eagle Pass and Shelby Park and, and Texas taking over this park and you won't allow the feds in and now people are drowning and dying and you're just standing back, Dr. Buckingham. You're standing back and watching good people die in the middle of the river because you won't let the feds I have, in. I have so much to tell you about all of that. So first of all, uh, no, most people don't realize it was the General Land Office that, that built the first section of the wall several decades ago, and, and that is because part of what we do is flood mitigation. And so down in the valley, we built a big levee, and it just happened to have a 30-foot fence on top of it. So, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. We can get that border secure. Uh, so we kind of started in that history. Of course, I have hundreds of thousands of acres all along the border, and we're doing things there. But let's talk about this park for a second. This was a city park, happens to have a golf course on it. It's where the local kids uh, practice golf who are on the golf team. And it was made completely unsafe by the feds turning it into an immigrant processing center. So it was filled with thousands upon thousands of migrants. It was no longer safe. Um, the local community could not access their park. The kids were not safe to practice golf. And so, and so DPS came in and took control of the park. The other thing that's important to realize is that Previously, under the Trump administration, Border Patrol had decided that in-water barriers would be very needed at this point at the border because the river here is very variable and incredibly unsafe and so incredibly likely to to cause drownings. And so because of that high risk, there were already plans to have barriers in the river. Now, of course, when Biden came in, he, he usurped all those plans to secure our border and opened it up fully. But that's that's why the razor is there. The boat ramp is still open for Border Patrol to uh, to to come in and launch boats. But barriers barriers change the traffic pattern 
you know, people go where there's not a big barrier. So the barriers are actually intended to prevent drownings so that channels um, channels the migrants to places where they can be accessed by Border Patrol, and it's a safer part of the river. So there's a lot of sides to this argument. The Biden administration is impressive with, uh, with the stuff they throw out into the air. But we're going to fight hard and secure our border. And, um, you know, they're talking about taking the razor wire. I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed in uh, the Supreme Court's original decision, but that was just a, a brief about an injunction. The bigger court case happens in the Fifth Circuit, I think, somewhere around February 7th. So stay tuned. The fight's mm. still going. Whose park is it? It's the city's park, actually. Um, but the DPS and the Texas Military Department have uh, secured it so the citizens can have access to it. So you mentioned how, of course, borders change uh, patterns and where people go, of course. Um, it just clicked as I'm looking at a aerial... Uh, picture of Shelby Park, there's a highway going right through the park, through the golf course, over the Rio Grande, into Mexico. Mm -hmm. So, like, the people are coming across the river, like, a couple blocks away from what I'm assuming is a legal means of coming in and out of the country. Yes, amazing that. There's a wonderful pathway. But you know what? The cartels don't make billions of dollars if people just walk across a bridge. It's right there. So this is this is all about money. And, and again, I, I remind everyone, the folks coming across are completely enslaved by the cartels. They are either going to be selling drugs to make up their debt to the cartels. They're going to be selling their bodies. They're going to be selling their young children's bodies. The stories are truly horrific, especially in the trafficking. The fact that we have recovered enough fentanyl to kill every man, woman, and child in America multiple times over. Um, you know, there's there is just a lot going on there. In fact, if the cartels find someone who came across and and didn't use them, they go and kill them and their families in the most violent way. Just tell everyone you could only come across with us. So you're exactly right. There is a safe place to legally walk across and, and um, engage in the process in a legal manner, but that's not what they want to do. Talking with the Texas Land Commissioner, Dr. Don Buckingham, uh, Texas, Land, yeah, Texas Land Commissioner. Um, okay, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. No state mm -hmm. shall, that includes you, Texas, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops, or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power or engage in war, comma, unless acted actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. Are you mm -hmm. being actually invaded in the state of Texas? I consider 3 million people across our border an invasion, 300,000 in December alone, setting all-time records. Um, the people we're seeing are a lot of military-age young men. We are seeing uh, a lot of weapons. We are seeing violence peak in Mexico across the river. We are absolutely being invaded. If we had, let's just pick it, if 10,000 Texans walked across into Mexico, uh, Mexico would consider being invaded. It is laughable, these liberal mayors that are the sanctuary cities, such as New York City, and that mayor starts complaining about getting 100,000 migrants. When you put that in context with Eagle Pass, it would be like New York City getting 2.7 million migrants mm. a week. Those are the kind of relative <laughs> numbers that Texas is dealing with. We are absolutely being invaded, and we are being invaded because Biden's policies are the active lure that bring people here. Texas has been standing in this gap for several years, um, you know, and, and will continue to do so. But I, but I just want to remind everybody, you are exactly right. It is the federal policies that are driving this. And if this is a disaster, which I think it is, and I think it's an invasion, then it is going to take a change at the federal level. We need a new president if we're going to get any kind of sanity within this room. Okay, so, but this is a, this, here's the argument. The argument is that this is a federal issue, the border. You, state, can't come in here and go rogue and start securing the border when this is a federal government responsibility and... Dr. Don Cunningham, Texas Land Commissioner, if someone comes across that border halfway across that river and claims asylum, it is the federal government's responsibility to protect that asylum seeker from people like you, quite frankly. What do you say to that? <laughs> 
Well, you're right. Well, let's talk about Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, which is that the federal government has to guarantee, one, a republic form of government, and two, safety and secure border. They have completely failed. And so when the federal government can't do their job, or in this case, won't do their job, then I think Texas and every other state has the full right to step in and do it. Of course, the very best option is to have the federal government actually do its job, obey our Constitution, obey the laws of our country. But since they clearly are not interested in that, we have to defend ourselves. Okay. Well, and I've never read Article 4, Section 4. Uh, bear with me, uh, Land Commissioner. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government okay, and shall protect each of them against invasion. Come on. How, how in this whole conversation, I've never heard Article 4, Section 4. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess the nuance here is what is an invasion? I, I always would have interpreted an invasion as an uh, armed military led by a commander, you know, like the army of Guatemala is coming up here. Uh, this isn't mm-hmm. that. So the question is, how close to that is this? Is is this an invasion? That's the question, right? Well, we see, you know, and, and that's and you're exactly right. That is the nuance. But I'm going to be honest. What What's coming across, we are seeing a lot of armed people coming across. Um, there are pictures from game cameras and, and, and security cameras all up and down our border, uh, hordes of military-aged men carrying fully automatic rifles, um, not even just semi-automatic rifles. Uh, This is an invasion. We think it's an invasion. We have tried every other option to defend ourselves and to compel the federal government to to do its own duty and what it's supposed to do. But again, if they won't, we will. What do the feds want out of you exactly? Well, I can say that we've seen recently a New York Congresswoman talking about how she wants a lot of the migrants in her district to help her with redistricting. I think we can see with the amnesty um, push that the the feds or the Democrats are doing, I think that they want a block of voters that will turn the tides of our elections for decades, if not centuries to come. I think it's pretty obvious what they're trying to do. What do they want the What do they want the state of Texas law enforcement to do? They want you to leave Shelby Park so that and, and other places so that they can do what? You know, I think they want um, they want an open border. They want a sieve. You have to understand this is our border is hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, the good thing about the barriers is it does channel the migrants so that uh, if and when they get across, they can be encountered by <clears throat> border patrol and law enforcement. You can't put enough people on the border to secure every square inch of it without some kind of a barrier. And so I think they clearly just want a sieve of a border, and they want to let everybody in, regardless of the fact that they're coming from over 150 countries, um, thousands of people from countries that – uh, that sponsor terrorism. And let's talk about the Chinese for a second. You don't just walk out of China. The only way you get out of China is if your government lets you out or wants you out. Mm. And so when you think about, you know, between the spy balloon coming over our shores, you you look at the 100-year Chinese plan uh, when the Communist Party took over about being the supreme the supreme force in the world. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of indication we could be headed toward military conflict with China, and and yet we're seeing tons of migrants from China come across the border. From what I've seen, they're pretty much all military-age males. Um, we're seeing a lot of people off the terrorist most wanted list. Um, I think, you know, there are people who who benefit from chaos. It's why you see um, the narco state that is so much of Central and South America, and they want you know, for whatever reason, they feel like that empowers them. Congressman Joaquin Castro of San Antonio said that Republicans are bloodthirsty when it comes to the issue of immigration. Are you bloodthirsty? (laughs) I think Republicans want people to come legally and have the American dream. And and when you come across uh, the border illegally and you're given a court date six years later, um, you can't work legally. Now, you're given all the social services, which is going to have an incredible impact on our uh, on our budget and, and the financial strain just from that point of view. But what, what Republicans want 
is we want people to come here and be productive citizens and have have access to the American dream. And the people who are coming across now don't have access to that. Hmm. Last question for you, Land Commissioner, is there's a this major talking point from the Democrats right now that Trump doesn't want the border that this border deal to go through. And he wants Trump wants the border to be open like it is now from now until the election to make Biden look bad. So he's sabotaging efforts to secure the border until he can get elected. That's the claim from the left. Uh, is that true? What, what do you make of that? <laughs> That's laughable. Um, so, so of course, right now, Trump has no control over the border. Um, I always do try to emphasize as well that our border communities are lovely communities with amazing people who live there. I'm down there a fair amount, and every time I go, um, especially well now under the Biden administration, even the most hard our ardent Democrats down at the border recognize and are furious that the Biden administration is leaving their communities unsafe, hurting them economically. And so, uh, you know, I think we all want the border secure. Biden is, is showing no signs of securing it. I think Trump is our only hope as our presidential nominee to get it done. Texas Land Commissioner Dr. Don Buckingham claiming islands left and right. Maybe you can be in charge of claiming Greenland. This was the biggest disappointment <laughs> of the Trump presidency was that he could he like threw it out there, never executed. Right? It was a major failure, I believe, on his behalf. So that you could be the one to do it. I'll look into that. Yes, thank you. <laughs> as soon as this is over, move on to the next project. Uh, Dr. Don Buckingham. Thank you, man. We'll talk again. Have a great day. Have a wonderful day. Um, I'm like half joking about Greenland. I'm like 10% joking about Greenland. <laughs> I think. I'm actually not at all joking. I think we should definitely take over Greenland. I don't know what the problem was. That's what I'm going to talk about Trump about, actually, next time we chat. Whatever happened to Greenland, Don? Come on, man. You can't just be throwing stuff out there and not fall through, especially that something that awesome. <laughs> conquest. <laughs> Natural conquest again back in America. <laughs> American made I got American parts Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. So on today's show I mentioned a little bit about families. My family in particular. Back back at it. <laughs> back at it with the I can't believe you could support that monster. So when I talked about phase two beginning after the Iowa caucuses, I mostly focused on the media attacking you, no longer attacking Trump, but uh, training their sights on you. But that's also true with families. So that has officially begun. I've got a lot of emails about that. So I'm not the only one. And we'll chat more about that tomorrow and what to do about it. Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily. See you tomorrow. Spread the word.